This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Once again, we've saved civilization as we know it. And the good news is they're not going to prosecute. Oh, they might as well have prosecuted me. I felt like Lieutenant Valaris. Well, they don't arrest people for having feelings. And it's a good thing, too. If they did, we'd all have to turn ourselves in. Captain Kirk. Captain Sulu. As much to the crew of the Enterprise, I owe you my thanks. Nice to see you in action one more time, Captain Kirk. Take care. My God, that's a big ship. Not so big as her captain, I think. So, this is goodbye. I think it's about time we got underway ourselves. Captain, I have orders from Starfleet Command. We're to put back to space dock immediately to be decommissioned. human, I believe my response would be, go to hell. If I were human. For setting, Captain. Second start of the ride. And straight on till morning. log stardate 9529.1 this is the final cruise of the starship enterprise under my command this ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew to them and their posterity will we commit our future they will continue the voyages we have begun and journey to all the undiscovered countries boldly going where no man where no one has gone before
Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Jeffrey Harlan, and Norman Lau is nowhere to be seen for this episode. I've actually appropriated his voice because I'm an assassin that works for the Klingon Empire. No, that's absolutely not true. You know that it's the chief. No, that's not true at all. It actually is me. (laughs) I am very confused. What is going on, Commodore? This is the undiscovered Commodore, I guess, you know, I don't Ah, know. Okay. You know, we can, we can, we can fly with that, but no, actually I'm really (laughs) excited to be back. Um, it's, I've, I've been off, uh, at Starfleet command working for section 31 for a couple weeks and here I am back in the chair. I'm really excited to be back with the chief. The chief is with us tonight. How are you chief? I am doing great. I'm a little nervous that you just admitted you were with section 31. So I'm making sure there's no little laser targets emanating anywhere around you. So you'll never just, see us coming. You'll never see us coming. I personally, I would like human shield yourself with Schmedlap and Umpty Scratch and let them earn their pay. Oh, they're in the rack. <laughs> they, they've been working all day on that Atavacron and, and uh, they, they can't do anything with it. We just got to stick with good old fashioned Starfleet technology. This old outdated time travel machines, it, it's, it's, it's way beyond their scope. Well, it's, it's a good idea that you put him in the rack because I think they may have done something to Mr. Atos because he's not going to be with us tonight, unfortunately. I think we have some technical, technical difficulties that have, I don't know, I think they've trapped him in a transmat beam. So it's just going to be you and I. And I hope that we hold the standard that Mr. Atos has set just in terms of all the really good trivia details that he has. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll make do, right, Chief? I think we're going to do just fine. As we know, as I've been saying, the movies, that's my specialty. And I know you know a lot about this movie, too. So as always, Mr. Atos could have added, I'm sure, quite a bit of good information. But uh, we'll we'll try to hold the mantle for him. You're right. And I love it that you're so excited about talking about the movies because... When you really kind of look back at this pantheon of all the different movies that we're covering from the motion picture, the Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock and the Voyage Home, the Academy Award winning and incredibly high quality Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which I was unfortunately not be able, wasn't, uh, didn't take part in, uh, sadly, because I could have thrown my two cents and my weight around as Commodore on that show, on the last show. And now we're finally going into Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, a title that was lifted originally from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, when Nicholas Meyer wasn't looking. <laughs> right, Chief? <laughs> that's that's right. <clears throat> yep. he, he, he finally had enough clout to get in his way for the for the for the swan 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 song for the original cast so it was it was pretty cool i do know that when they mentioned it i i I have to admit i did not know where that that phrase came from or or what it meant and i learned i learned it from the movie itself well it's no secret that star trek and shakespeare have a really good relationship i mean especially when you hear it in the original klingon as um, our Klingon dinner counterparts uh, so eloquently put it, takba, um, takbe, uh, I believe is the translation for um, one of those lines. Uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. And obviously when Christopher Plummer says anything, Shakespeare is obviously amazing. So that is fun true. fact, fun yep, fact. Um, very good fact. I do believe that um, since we're trying to step all over Mr. Atos's territory here. Christopher Plummer and William Shatner used to work together in the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it was my understanding that William Shatner was his understudy. So while Christopher Plummer wasn't able to do his role, William Shatner stepped into it. And because he had to remember his lines and (laughs) enunciate 
and then catch up with the rest of the scene. That's how William Shatner, rumor has it, uh, invented his now famous cadence and the way that uh, or Shatner-esque style, if you will. So did you ever hear about that before? I had heard that he was an understudy, definitely, and I knew that they were both Canadians and that they had worked in that Royal Shakespearean company, but I did not know that that's where he established his cadence, and I have to think that when Ataz listens to all this information, (laughs) he is going to be crawling onto his desk, sucking on his thumb, just in complete awe and amazement with what you just came up with. So (laughs) that's that's, that's something very new to me. I did not know that's where he came up with his cadence. That's that's great information. That's that's something brand new. I think I heard that on the Howard Stern show because William Shatner loved going on the Stern show, as did George Takei. And Speaking of Star Trek Six and George Takei, this is where Sulu really gets kind of like his due in a way. And, and forgive us, listeners, we're, we're going all over the map here. It's just because I'm so excited to be here and Star Trek Six has so much great content to it. So I think that maybe we should take it from the top down, Chief. Stay in order. Maybe, you know, keep, keep it in the rails. direction you want there, Commodore. It's going to be a great show either way. And there's a lot of things to cover. Okay, so we're obviously walking through all the Kirk and crew movies through Star Trek and Into Darkness and, and then finally getting into Beyond because Beyond is literally, as we're recording this on the evening of June 26, 2016, we are a month away. That's right. A month away oh, from the wait. next cinematic offering for Star Trek. And judging by the preview that we saw at the special event at Paramount Studios, I really do think that um, this is going to be probably the Star Trek that everyone's really been waiting for. What do you think, Chief? Oh, I hope so. And I hope it keeps the uh, the franchise alive from the movie franchise. I know we've got the TV show coming, but like I said before, I, I love the TV show. Star Trek works best, I think, on TV. But when you can really put you know, huge production value and something big on screen for the franchise that I love the most, I think it's wonderful. And I have... I have no problems with the Kelvin timeline, as they're calling mm-hmm. it now. So, I, uh, I I think it works it works quite well. So I, I'm I'm not a uh, a JJ hater at all. I I love the movies. I, I Star Trek Into Darkness. I had a lot of problems with, like a lot of people did, but uh, the first one was was brilliant, and um, I can't wait to talk about that movie and the second one in our upcoming weeks. So back to six. And I'm glad you brought that up, the Kelvin timeline, because now it's nice to have an official title or descriptor of this particular era of Star Trek. And just I just wanted to touch on a, on a quick point on the previous show on 131 when you were doing Star Trek V. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add my two personal cents in about uh, how I felt um, when I heard about the uh, news about Anton Yelchin. Um, that was... Un- well, first of all, it was like unbelievable. I was planning for my trip and I was buying a piece of luggage because I didn't have a proper suitcase and I just checked my messages. And I think Aaron Harvey posted it onto the Babel conference. I almost dropped my phone. Literally, I was like, that, that's got to be a joke. That's a terrible TMZ report. And then as the news started filtering in, I'm like, how could that be possible? How in this day and age could that be possible? And then I started hearing reports about how the accident, you know, unfolded. And I'm like, what a shame. What a God awful shame that we lost somebody so talented and so young to such a mind, uh, a meaningless accident. Right. And 
Uh, I just wanted to say that I absolutely loved him, loved his work. I loved him in Terminator. Uh, I loved him uh, as Chekhov, obviously. And there was so much ahead of him. And uh, I think that everyone... I'm going to put a personal note out there because I like doing these kind of things. I like reaching out to the fans with some of my opinions. Don't boycott Star Trek with what's going on right now. Go out there, support Star Trek, support Anton Yelchin, and support the role that you liked, the support Chekhov. Because as Star Trek fans, we're going to get through a lot of the drama that's happening right now in our fandom, in our 50th anniversary. But if you boycott the film... You're not supporting the characters that you actually do like and the actors that you do like. You're, you're, you're punishing the, the sum and not uh, for the whole. And so think about that when you're going through a lot of these um, private thoughts about how you feel about Star Trek today. I still love Star Trek, warts and all. And I think that as fans, and especially as fans for this new crew, we should go out there and give every ounce of support we can because they are probably going through the most difficult time ever right now, especially John Cho, who is so close to everybody. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to like exclude anybody. I think that entire cast and Justin Lin and JJ Abrams, they're probably heartbroken at what happened. So please think about what you're going to do when July 22nd comes around and support at least the cast because they really will need you and all the love that you can show them when you go to the theater and post about it on social media. That's just my plea to all the fans out there because I'm going to be doing the same thing. What do you, what do you think about that, Chief? I think you're absolutely spot on correct. I, I, there, you know, as, as we, we try to do in many times, and, I, and when it comes to anything Hollywood, obviously our emotions get vested into it. But if you really think of it, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that go on with a lot of companies and there's a lot of things that happen in the business world. Well, you can divorce yourself from that piece of it because it has nothing to do with you and me, uh, really. It has to do with what, what, you know, what's going on behind the scenes with a bunch of executives and a bunch of other people that want to do their thing. Let them hash it out. In the meantime, there's so many things going on in this world that are so damn depressing uh, last week, when when we lost uh, uh, Anton, we, we we also had you know the horrible 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 things that that went on in Orlando. It was just an awful week, and I, I pointed that out on the on the last show. It's just it's just been rough, and you know I go to to watch Star Trek or get involved with Star Trek because it's entertainment, and you know because of social media and because of all these things we have we we have views into things we never had before there was always stuff going on in the business world and it doesn't matter what sides you 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 come on on because it has nothing to do with you it has nothing to do with you the only thing that this is all about is whether or not you're interested in a in a in a movie that that we all enjoy or a concept that we enjoy and we want to see its its latest uh, incarnation and how they do with it, and and I think that that's a big focus. And I know that they'll, they've always been great about this in the past. They'll they'll put a card up there for for Anton Yeltsin and Elchin, and we'll be able to celebrate his life through watching this movie and through all the different clips that I've been watching this week on on YouTube that my son has put up for me um, for for Anton. He really was a talented guy. So. I think you made a great plea, Norm. I think you hit it right on the head. And let's just move on from this stuff because life's too short. I agree. I agree. So let's get right back into Star Trek Six now. After the disappointing, well, that's 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 a that's an that's an opinion that's like not shared by all. After the disappointing critical and financial results of Star Trek Five, and 
And, and there was a certain uncertainty that was going on with the next film. Are we going to have a next film? Are we not? We're rolling into the 25th anniversary. And the talk was this might be the final movie for the original series crew. And as the history goes, uh, Harv Bennett stepped in and proposed an original cast meeting about something around the terms of Starfleet Academy. And I remember hearing some rumblings about that and he kind of like wanted to set the reboots a little bit earlier, but I'm really glad that they didn't. I'm glad that they stuck to their guns and brought back Nicholas Meyer uh, as director and as one of the, well, he was also a co-writer in this as well, wasn't he, Chief? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with the 25th anniversary, pretty much like on the heads of everybody and the uncertainty of the franchise, the film franchise as we know it, because TNG was well in its in its strength uh, as 1991 rolled around, the Undiscovered Country was kind of hot-footed into production, but you had Leonard Nimoy in there uh, as also one of the co-writers. You had Nicholas Meyer in there with obviously his successes with The Wrath of Khan and uh, co-writing four and now directing and co-writing six. This is kind of like where that infamous odd numbered movie legend happened, because obviously <laughs> the most successful movies were two, four and six at the time. Uh, did you hear about that before, Ken? And it's like, is, was that something that uh, you and your friends also kind of felt uh, was the inside ins- information kind of joke that was going on with Star Trek? You the mean the, 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 the even numbered movies? Yeah, 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 yeah. I heard it right up until they, they made the new ones, too. And it. It, it it didn't quite all mesh out as you as you went forward because I guess they they feel that a couple of the TNG movies that came out in a row uh, kind of ruined that 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 track right they were looking for that mm. for that success so I I had heard about it and I think just to I guess kind of emphasize what we were talking about before about the business and politics of things so mm. when when Star Trek Five um, it bombed right fifty four million dollars and I don't know what its Rotten Tomato score was but it was pretty bad. Um, and you had, now you had, uh, the, the next generation really taking off Harv Bennett. What he wanted to do was write about, um, everybody meeting up in Starfleet Academy. And he wrote that script. And the idea was that the original crew would be in it. Uh, it would be like, uh, Admiral Kirk giving a commencement speech at Starfleet Academy. And, and then it would go back. Right, and it went back to the times where they all came together, and then the at the same time they were talking about a final movie to do at the same time. But when Bennett's script got out, that's when the politics came into play, and the original cast was obviously not happy that they wouldn't have a full movie to their own, not understanding the circumstance, and um, the studios kind of gave you know, Harv put a lot of work into that script. And he was really off, uh, upset with the way he was treated uh, when they decided to go in that other direction. They were, kind of, yeah, we'll do this, but we're going to do the original cast one first or whatever. They never went back to it. And Harv Bennett left the franchise. He had nothing to do with Star Trek VI. And then they had to really scramble in order to make this movie in time for the 25th anniversary. Well, I mean, I think that in Star Trek VI, one of the things I really do believe that was one of the great strengths of this was going back to the Star Trek formula of mm-hmm. trying to find social relevance in the storytelling. And when you take a look at the plot line of the movie and how when when the Klingon moon of Praxis at the beginning of the movie exploded to overmining and abuse, it really put the Klingon Empire and set that set them back as a military power for what decades and generations and 
if you wanted to take advantage of this situation, this is where Starfleet would have done it. We, they, like, uh, there was one line with Admiral Cartwright says, you know, this is the opportunity that we can put the Klingon Empire on their knees. Right. You know, let's strike now. This was really kind of paralleling what was happening at the time with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the end of the Cold War and a lot of uncertainty that was going on in, um, in Eastern Europe, and especially in the, in the Russian Empire, or the, um, uh, what was the Soviet Union at the time. So it was really a, a really cool opportunity to bring Star Trek back to that type of storytelling. I mean, I really thought that this film in and of itself was probably... The true successor, maybe to four, four could have rolled right into six. Mm-hmm. Five was like a little bit of a stopgap, but because of the way that the moment, the momentum was going and you had Kirk, you know, finally get back his command. This could have been that movie that really allowed him to take the 1701-A out for this mission and to bring him as that olive branch uh, between the Federation and the Klingon Empire I think that maybe five allowed the story, the overall story of the cinematic universe to kind of lose this momentum, but six really got it back on track. Um, aside from, I mean, we we can go over the plot line, you know, ad nauseum because a lot of people love six, but when you saw six in the theater in, in 1991, in December of 1991, what did you feel? Do you remember that? <laughs> like Spock, you know, what did you feel? What did you, what did you feel? When you saw that, when you when you just, you know, the Excelsior was larger than life and you saw that giant shockwave. And I don't know, it's just it felt like a completely different uh, game that was going on. Like, I think that they tried to make a complete divorce from what happened in Star Trek five and really elevate it back into Star Trek six. I agree with that. I think the first thing you noticed was the quality of the film itself. And even in the opening scenes, you were like, ah, okay, they've got ILM back. And you could see that very clearly. And uh, it was a great beginning. And it, and it set the tone, I think, for a, uh, a, a really strong takeoff. And so I guess the, the answer to your question was I felt relieved because I didn't want <laughs> to go down that same path again that we went down in five. Because, you know, as I, I set up, it, it's, it's something, you know, when you love something as much as, as, as we do, as I do, uh, and you love this cast... You want everything to work out great because you're in love with these these people. They're they're part of your family, and and when it doesn't, uh, you you you're, you're frustrated. You're disappointed, mm-hmm. probably more so than you would be for other things. And then that they got to go out with class and dignity, with a great plot and good quality filmmaking. I mean, Star Trek Six isn't perfect, and we'll hit on some of those things. But for the most part, it is a really great movie. And it was just so much fun to say, okay, my first thought was, we're back. We are mm-hmm. definitely back. And and this movie is going to, you know, right from the beginning, I knew this, this one's going to, this one's going to take off. Well, I think one of the strengths and one of the traditional tropes of Star Trek has always been like the Federation versus the Klingon Empire. And the Klingon Empire has always been painted as this this larger than life superpower. You know, it's almost kind of like a um, amalgamation of at least in the 1960s of the Soviet Union, China and Korea. And they are just this superpower that you know, the Western world or the United States had to address uh, every so often. And I've said this before, and I'm I'm going to make an apology to the fans of the Klingon Empire out there because I, in, in no way, shape or form am I trying to insult your fandom. But I never really felt in any of the Star Trek movies until six that the Klingon Empire was properly represented in terms of who they are, in terms of the intelligence level of their high command, in terms of 
what their capabilities were and in terms of the subterfuge that they were able to weave inside this story. I just felt that that was finally the Klingon Empire that I learned to love from the original series with the machinations and the subterfuge and the strategy and the the um, just the devilishness of core. Not so much in Kolos, but um, or Kolo, was it Kolos? Kolos, Koloth. Koloth. Koloth in uh, Trouble with Tribbles, but Trouble with Tribbles was kind of like an anomaly episode itself, but then getting into Kang and Day of the Dove. So that, those two, at least Kor and, and Kang, those were my Klingons. You know, they were, they were of purpose. You know, they had sound mind. They had very specific agendas that they needed to maintain for the Klingon empire. Uh, the mind sifter, you know, that Kor wanted to use on Kirk when he used on Spock, you know, there was mm. just, there was so very devious and so very um, singular of purpose. And I felt that when we finally saw the Klingon empire high command come off that transporter pad with Azitbor and Chang and um, Gorkhan and their great leather armor and that giant tooth, walking stick that he had. I was just, oh my God, are you kidding me? This is like, finally you get the the gravitas of the Klingon empire. Um, did you feel the same way chief or am I just, am I just kind of gushing because I finally got Klingons that I liked? No, I don't think you're gushing. I think there's a couple of things that played into it that, um, I have a, I have a real tough time admitting this and it's, it's taken a lot of counseling, a lot of Romulan ale, <laughs> and a lot of this to, to to say this over the air, but this was the one probably only time that the next generation had an impact on the original series. And, you know, by the time this movie was made, uh, the next generation had been on the air for three years going into its fourth season. And they had already set the precedent that we were at peace with the Klingons. And so... What Star Trek does best, as you pointed out, it took the relevant things that were going on in in the political dynamic of Earth at that time, which Chernobyl, the wall coming down, they put that together into a place where they could say, okay, the next generation says we're at peace with the Klingons. Well, where did that happen? How did that start? And they were Mm -hmm. able to pull in, even using Worf, right? Uh, Using Mm -hmm. Worf's grandfather, pulling him in and making that connection. And so... You know, there was it was perfect in the way that it was executed. It was nice the way it all fed into. I'm not happy that TNG had a lot to do with the success of the original series because it's always been the other way around as it should be. So the world just got all backwards for me for a little bit. And that's okay. And by the way, I am a TNG fan. I'm just having a little fun here. But it is definitely uh, to those reasons, I think, that you saw such development in the characters of the Klingons in in the original series, in the original series um, uh, world timeline. I'm trying to think of the right word. We had some great, I mean, for me, I think that another reason why this movie was kind of like a cut above is we had such great, great guest stars, great guest cast members. I mean, Christopher Plummer is a world-renowned actor. I mean, we, I mean, a lot of us love him for his, his character of, of, um, and sound of music of uh, Georg Von Trapp, Captain Von Trapp. I mean, that's when I first learned of of um, Christopher Plummer, but we also had, and I'm a huge fan of hers from all the way back when she was Gracie Law in Big Trouble in Little China, Kim Cattrall as Lieutenant Valeris. Now, I always found her character to be really interesting because we had Kirstie Alley as Savick in two, then we had Robin Curtis as Savick in three and a little bit in four, but Valeris, I always felt that 
why not bring Savic back around as Lieutenant Valeris? I, I wish Atos was here because he probably has a little bit more history and knowledge about this, but... Oh, what I know the answer to this one. Oh, well, please. Chief, I'm by here all means. for you. Yes, they, <laughs> they wanted uh, to bring uh, Lieutenant Savick back. Uh, they had actually sought out Kirstie Alley, who at this point was just taking off big time with Cheers. So it was very, very expensive for her to get her. Right, but right. believe it or not, they were going to have uh, Savick be the traitor um, that Valaris paid, played and Gene Roddenberry raised a stink about it. He did. He th- hmm. he thought it was wrong or whatnot, and it created another battle. Uh, and at this point, too, it's, it probably wasn't very fair because Gene was really, really ill at this time. Uh, but he, he stood his ground and said, no, you know, she would never do this. And Nicholas Meyer's like, this is my character. I created her, not you. I can do what I want with it. But it was one of those rare occurrences where he won the argument. And I think the other thing that played into it was that uh, they could not afford uh, uh, Kirstie Alley's fee to come back. I, I don't know where they were in the negotiations or whatnot, but but those two things of what led them down this road. And I think you know it, it added a um, a very a very strong actress into the into the Star Trek lexicon. I thought Kim Cattrall did a great job. Powerful. Yeah, I mean, job. I, always, I always enjoyed her, and that's her scenes with Leonard Nimoy, especially when he handed her almost physically in a way handed her the mantle of of the science officer for the enterprise, you know, and he, uh, he had that great line. He's like, you know, um, logic is the beginning of wisdom, Valeris, not the end. I th- I always thought that was brilliant. They, they actually had some great chemistry together on screen, but so did William Shatner and Christopher Plummer for reasons that we stated earlier on in the show. But we also had some really other great Star Trek alumni here. I mean, you talked about it before, you know, you had Michael Dorn as Worf's ancestor, Colonel Worf. So you had Worf, then you had Moog, then you had Worf again. Uh, and, you know, for all you Deep Space Niners, you know, let me know if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. But you also had Cisco's dad. You had Brock uh, Peter in there as Admiral Cartwright. So I always thought that was neat. We, we saw him in four uh, a little bit when he was talking about, you know, um, where the uh, bird of prey was coming in and <laughs> get him back, get him back, you know. Look. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think John Shuck was also in there a little bit. But what I loved about Six also was that it it kind of gave us um, Star Trek alumni, but just more in the actors and not necessarily like future roles. Like you also had Rene Abergenois there as Colonel West. Uh, he was there briefly. He was in, in, a, in a scene that was cut out of the original story because it had to do with a little bit more of a Scooby-Doo type ending. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But I really do think that the uh, the strength of the cast and there was a great balance in not only focusing on the the major, the Trinity of Kirk, Spock and McCoy, because that's always really like the secret for original series content. But you also had a lot more of the secondary cast, especially George Takei. I mean, he really came into his own. He had the Excelsior at the very beginning of the movie, and he did a brilliant job with that. And that small cameo appearance by the casting director of the movie, Mary Jo Slater's son, Christian Slater. Did yeah, you know no, that? Yes, I did know that. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So take that, Atos. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man, now he's got both thumbs. That's yeah, right. He's, yeah, he's, he's a mess. He's like, oh, they don't need us anymore. We still need you, Atos, even though we're killing it. 
right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so going back to George Takei, I mean, Captain Sulu, and then that was always kind of like dangled around. That carrot was like in front of George Takei for the last couple of movies. But now he finally came in as captain of the Excelsior. And how did you like him in that role? I mean, do you find like I love the, the serenity he had with his tea, but you also felt that George Takei was just emanating this glow when he was finally there in the captain's chair. How did you feel about that, Ken? You know, it's funny. Uh, I felt great about it. I, I, I always root for the, uh, the, ca- the other characters, the, 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 the other four, so to speak, of the cast of Seven. You want them to do well. You want them to have success. You want them to have their moments. And George Takai, especially back then, was always such a class act. He, if you went to conventions and you saw him back in those days, he was engaging. He was polite. He was patient. Uh, in in, I saw him after Star Trek Two came out, and was literally talking to him at a table about what was it like to see, you know, your mouth open, about to be told that you're going to be captain or you're, you've been promoted to captain. The Excelsior wasn't in play there, but he was going to be promoted as captain and. And they cut it, and then they they reinsert that part about any chance to go aboard the Enterprise, you know, and and they cut again. And he was genuinely like, yeah, it was very disappointing. And you could see it, you know, in in his face. And so he probably got the worst deal of the original cast members when you think of it. He had some, some pretty good lines in some parts in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and he did sit in the center seat for a little while. In Star Trek II, he was a bus driver. In Star Trek III, he had a quick scene, uh, you know, don't call me tiny. In Star Trek IV, <laughs> the scene, we talked about this, you know, he, he was supposed to have a big scene meeting his great-grandfather and the kid wouldn't play. And so he had, you know, he, he was cut back a lot in that. In Star Trek V... Yeah. And then Star Trek six, <laughs> there he is. He gets, he gets this, this huge role. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where his patience, his resolve, him not willing to say a bad word about anything back then, uh, you know, that changed in time, but he really didn't. He, he kind of kept quiet. He was a very dignified person, very charming. And, and he, it came full circle for him. And, you know, he wanted to do a Captain Sulu series. He was proud of it. You know, you, you look at his um, his biography, he's wearing his captain's uniform. You know, he's mm-hmm. all proud to the stars, George Takei. I've, I've got it on my... And and so, yeah, I, I you know, Norm, it's like you, you want good things to happen to good people, right? And and he's a good guy. And, and I just, I was happy for him. If it had been Chekhov in the center seat, it probably would have been just as fun. But... In that sense, I think George and the character Sulu really deserve something big because they didn't get many moments in the movies. Yeah, you know, it's always been a real interesting juggling and balancing act, you know, trying to make sure that you're handling your main cast and then trying to make sure that you are spreading out the responsibility to the ensemble. Because in this movie, I mean, you had a lot of characters. You know, you had the obviously the Federation characters, the characters for the Enterprise. Then you had Kim Cattrall coming in as Valeris and you had the entire Klingon ensemble that was going on, plus all of the other characters at Starfleet Command. I mean, this is like a big, this is a big ensemble cast. But I think what really won out for me in this movie were the quieter moments. I really loved the scene where Kirk was unpacking his suitcases and he put that picture of David down and he said, I will never be able to forgive them for the death of my boy. That really set a tone because Starfleet asked Kirk, ordered Kirk, asked Kirk 
to be this olive branch between the Federation and the Klingon Empire, but they knew that he has this issue, if you will, for all intents and purposes, that he can't just get past. I always felt that inserting that personal, I guess it would be that personal moment, obviously used against him uh, because Valeris was recording everything that he said. Uh, I just thought that how how do you get past or what did Kirk say? How does history get past people like us? I love that. I love that because in Star Trek, there's this whole we're supposed to be open minded and forgiving and accepting and embracing and all that. But I think in that particular scene, they were basically saying, you know what? There are certain some things that just can't be crossed. There's just certain reconciliations that just can't be made. And do you think that the effect, you know, why would you put somebody like that in charge of this very particular mission? Only Nixon can go to China, as Spock said. It got a great laugh out of the people. But why not put Spock in charge? Why put Kirk in charge? You know that the volatility was there. Yeah, it was it was an interesting plot point, And I think it, it served its purpose. And I think it does show at the end that you can get redemption from these things. We all have our personal stories in life and and there are reasons why you know something happens to us um and and you can never ever ever put yourself in the place of somebody that might have lost a a, a child a sibling anything along those lines uh, and expect you know to to be calm and rational when it comes to certain things nor should they be so i thought it was a a very bold move on the writing staff to do it because and and I'm not here to to beat up anymore on Star Trek V, but that whole piece was absolutely ignored. I didn't address it in the last one, but it was something that bugged me about just the cavalierness of the Klingons, right? They were just there as an afterthought. And, and a claw. And a claw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was there was nothing. And that's 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 always an issue I kinda had with Shatner to a degree, is when he was doing these movies, he enjoyed it. He was making a lot of money or whatever, but he, he wasn't he wasn't into it as much as the rest of the team. And he did, he had a very short memory. He just did. And so he'd go on from one movie to the next. It was, it was great that, that Leonard Nimoy and Nicholas Meyer wrote the story uh, for this because they were able to pull back all those plot points that would have been very, very relevant. And that was probably, you know, probably the, the, the single most important issue that was facing these guys. You know, the, he had to grow up with all that pain um, that inner hatred for what they did and the way they act. And, you know, if you look across all the original series TV shows and the movies up to that point, the Klingons showed nothing, no mercy, no anything. They were just a, a bunch of killers. So Kirk's attitude, well, kind of disdainful and distasteful in a lot of people's mouths, was perfectly warranted, warranted and validated from his perspective. And I respected that. You know, I think that entire emotional content just kind of like came to a boil at that dinner scene because I really do think that it was probably a masterstroke of writing on Nicholas Meyer's part. And I, I'm not sure if he wrote this particular part of the script, but when Chekhov says, you know, we believe that certain species have, you know, unalienable human rights, I think everyone got a little bit prickly by that because when Asit Bohr said inalienable human rights, you know, the very word itself is offensive. Racist. Yeah. Racist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's I always thought that that scene was like, wow. You always believed that the Federation was a little bit more broad minded than that. 
but maybe not necessarily when it came to the Klingon Empire. You know, you're they were having, you know, there was that really funny line when when Chekhov says, you know, guess who's coming to dinner? You know, it's you wanted fireworks to happen and they did in a way. But there's this really just smoldering undercurrent of xenophobia that was happening with the Federation. And I thought that we were past that. But it really I mean, it just goes to show you that humans are still humans, right? Well, of course, yeah. And and I think that's why Nicholas Meyer wrote it the way he did, and that's why he wrote all the movies the way he did. He did not believe that we were going to evolve as a species that much in that short amount of time. And, you know, it, you're, you're taking, you know, 10,000 years of history, uh, a couple hundred years is, is an eye blink, you know, in those timelines. What, how much are you truly going to evolve? And, and maybe we will, maybe we won't, but I, I think it was one of those things too, when you're kind of in this heightened cold war, uh, where, you know, there's, there's, there's two races that are essentially ready to, to pounce on you. Uh, you tend to, I wouldn't even know what the term was because we, I, we would say dehumanize your, your enemies, so to speak. Uh, but in this case, you know, bearing in mind, it wasn't just Kirk that lost his son, it was their captain that lost his son. There mm. was a lot of death and a lot of pain uh, created by the Klingons, and it had a direct impact on that entire crew. They lost their ship because of the Klingons, right. uh, something that they, 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 they had been sailing on for you know, 20 plus years at that point. So there's a lot of animosity there with that team and with that crew. And while I'm not sure sure that the, the writers were taking that into account, they captured it regardless, and they did a nice job with it. So in one of the points here, I mean, we talked about how Kirk feels, but you also had Scotty and Admiral Cartwright. Now, Cartwright said, you know, this is the perfect opportunities to bring them to their knees. I mean, he really wanted to take the offensive against the Klingon Empire. He was a military man, and maybe that's rightfully so. But I found that true to Cartwright's character because this is kind of like at least in the director's cut when they were doing kind of like the whole plot against and the assassination that was part of this Romulan Federation unholy alliance if you will I, that that meant actually uh, something to Cartwright and, and to Colonel West but Scotty why did you mention Scotty in this note well let's just back up one thing about um, Brock Peters and, and the line that he delivered he said that the Klingons were the alien trash of the galaxy, right? Mm, and mm. that when that whole scene was written, written, you know, Brock Peters being African-American, he struggled with those lines. And they said it, mm. it was delivered. You could see that he delivered it well, but it was a very painful line for him to deliver just based on his own history and, sure. and, and not wanting to put down anybody or call somebody trash, right? I mean, we hear it all the time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just not, it's not an appropriate thing. So you really get the feel for, for where he was at with that. And that's, that's one of the things I think that was probably the more telling line that he had to say. And with Scotty, you know, uh, that Klingon bitch didn't even shed a tear. You know, I, I just was like, <laughs> I, I didn't like that line at all. I, 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 it, it you know, it, when her father died, you know, I'm sure that Klingon bitch didn't shed one bloody tear. And, it, it resonates with me. I never forgot it. I remember the, the moment he said it, and I just said, that is not Montgomery Scott. 
they blew that piece. I, I thought they that was a, that was a terrible line. It was inappropriate. Um, you can hate your enemy, but you know the you know I, I guess the thought process was they killed their own people in order to make sure that they you know because they're animals and that type of stuff and. But I, I, I just thought that that, that was a, a, an inappropriate line uh, all across the board. I mean, it was yeah. set up a funny line, like they don't have tear ducts or something, but I didn't like it. Yeah, it, it smacks of writers not understanding Montgomery Scott, because when you look all the way back to the original series as something that he just doesn't do, he doesn't get involved on that political side. You know, he cares about the ship and he cares about the ship and Kirk. You know, so, you know, politics aside, you know, that's you're right. I I remember that line and that that kind of smacked me as being a little bit uh, disingenuine of Scotty. So but there was was a lot. That that word was what bothered me more than anything. It wasn't the fact that she didn't shed a tear, but just that term, bitch. I I, I was like, no, that's not what this team does not refer to women of any race. They don't do that. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I know they might have said "son of a," you know, a few times or things like that. But and I get that. But this was a very derogatory term that that I think went over the line. You know, any other movie, it would be like, yeah, okay, we we hear it all the time. Uh, right. Not one, not somebody you really admire. You know, one of the things that's not in the notes that I wanted to bring up, and it's probably one of my favorite scenes in this in in Star Trek Six, was the trial. Uh, and uh, the consequence in Rura Penthe. I loved the trial. I mean, the trial was, it was such a paper tribunal, but it really did bring in some really interesting things that have paid forward in Star Trek, especially in Enterprise, Mm -hmm. in the episode Judgment, because now you really saw that, you know, in Rura Penthe um, and the Klingon Tribunal, these are fixed elements now in the series. Do you remember that episode, Judgment? I do, I do. Yeah. I I thought it was, it was a, very interesting episode, and uh, they they did a night. Everything was great about that episode except the ending. But otherwise, yeah, it was really good. Now with Colonel Worf, did you find him? Well, what's the right word here? Necessary or believable? Oh, I I thought that um, it was. I I love when they do that when they when they bridge gaps. I mean, we didn't know there was going to be a generations. And mm-hmm. by that point, Generations was really starting to find its footing. And, you know, who didn't love Worf? I mean, you had to love him. And so for them to kind of reach out and pull him in, I thought that was really cool. So, well, you kind of, I mean, yeah, when yeah. you saw him, you kind of like felt that they were trying to find a way to finally bridge the quote unquote generations before Generations came out, mm-hmm. you know. But I actually did like Colonel Worf. I really liked that he was there. He was... um he was there before the the trees at Narendra three happened, you know, with the Enterprise C and, and and their sacrifice there. So I always thought it was a neat element to be able to actually pull in an honorable Klingon who fought on the side of the Federation that actually tied into the history or the um the future of Star Trek and 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 generations. So that was neat. Now I don't know. We we talked about this earlier offline, Ken. And should we mention some of kind of like the bit players that never really made it? To the final cut, like Renee and Colonel West. Well, I I thought Colonel West uh, was in the original cut, going over the battle plans. After, uh, yeah. After the president did his speech, right? Uh, the the part where he is identified as the assassin that was definitely not in there, um, and that was probably the 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 biggest one that that I know of that that didn't get in. 
that didn't get included. Was was there some other characters that you remember that were pulled in in the director's cut that that uh, had some pieces that we missed? Well, not so much the director's cut. I mean, there was a little bit of subplot that was going on with the uh, the Klingon ambassador, this Nocalus. Nonclus. I'm not sorry. The uh, the Romulan yep. ambassador, Nocalus. Nocalus. Yep. And but I'm a big fan of Kurtwood Smith. Love him and everything yeah. that he does, especially when I saw him as uh, you know in, in RoboCop. Sure. But the Federation, as the Federation president, I thought it was interesting. But and I'm going to try and pull a bit of trivia out here. Now, now forgive me if I get this wrong, but I do believe that Kurtwood Smith comes back to Star Trek in Voyager as the Krenim temporal ship captain. You are correct. Oh, yes. Take that, Ataz. Take that <laughs> to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's now medicating himself. He's gone beyond extreme. Oh, I'm so good. How about mm-hmm. questions, people? How about stump the Commodore? I mean, I don't know. I think I could do it, maybe. Or else, Ken, you're just going to have to deep dig deep into your pocket. So, no, but... <laughs> I do, I do love all of the um, the, uh, the the cast members that came in, like especially the the guest stars. But um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I thought that the uh, the whole scene at the end of the movie where Kirk pretty much does a eighteen to twenty foot vertical leap to save the president was a little overdone. Kirk Enterprise, but it was kind of fun. So. Like I said, I don't like going over the plots, but the end of the movie was really cool. You know, where the Federation and the Klingon Empire kind of made it like a really cool reconciliation. What are your thoughts of that? At the end of the movie? Well, I yeah. I, I thought it was it was a special ending. Yeah, you know, one one of the things that I think is worth talking about, so it'll get to this answer, was mm-hmm. the the original storyline uh that that Leonard and, and Nick Meyer had put together was a lot less um, a whodunit <clears throat> and more of an exploration into the Klingons and to the the whole definition of how they were going to figure out, um, you know, to, to bridge a peace treaty and so forth. And, he, you know, Leonard Nimoy always kind of looked at that as a lost opportunity uh, when, it, when it turned into, you know, looking for the clues around the ship and all that other stuff. He, he thought it was okay. He just thought it could have been bigger. And I think that... By the time we got to the end and the battle is over and, and Kirk does his leap and everybody's applauding, I thought it was pretty special. Uh, I, I, I took the ending more to be a, a final salute to the original cast and plot B was, hey, now we can get on with, with making peace with the Klingons. And, and, and you know, with, with they're all standing on stage and kind of posing, which, you know, I thought was kind of funny uh, when, when Scotty and Sulu take one side of the stage and put their legs up and everybody's clapping for them. But, hey, I was clapping, too. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a good ending. So the answer to your question is yes, the um, it, it, it was it was good. It, it delivered well. Uh, you know, they saved the day at the last minute. And um, like I said, it, it, it starts them on the path that, that we get to know better in, in the next generation. So it, it, everything worked out very, very well in the original movie piece. Right, right, right. You know, there's um, an interesting point that was made, and I, I've read about this at length uh, since the movie came out. And uh, I don't want to put I don't want to make light of this. So please, uh, listeners, when you when you hear me talking about this, believe me that I'm taking it with the most serious intent there was a scene where Spock and Valeris were intertwined in a mind meld. And I remember reading about this as soon as it came out. 
they believed, fans believed, that Spock went way beyond the responsibility or the, um, gosh, I'm not even sure how to put this. I don't want to offend anybody, but you can say Spock, it. Spock essentially mentally violated Valeris. Yep. And that was a big point of contention with the character because, yes, the mind meld was a certain thing and it was always done with permission or at least most of the time, as far as I can remember, was done with permission. But not only did we see a mind meld, we saw a double-handed mind meld, way against Valeris's permission, and to the point where Spock, basically, she was up against a wall, up against a couple of crewmen, they held her in place, and he, without permission, went for it. So that, I thought, was, it was something that, even for Spock, was something that I thought was very dire, in terms of his character. what? How did you feel about that when you saw it? And do you think that the writers just maybe went a little bit too far in terms of the, the, the how Spock approached the mind meld and the Vulcan mysticism? Or I'm going to put it out there. Do you think it was just uh, some type of strange representation of violation? I don't know. I mean, I, I just uh, when I saw that, I was like, I was very uncomfortable watching that. I think we were all uncomfortable watching it. And it was a very, very powerful moment. And if you were squiggling around in your chair, and even as you were describing it, I started to feel uncomfortable because, you know, there's there's a crisis looming and, you know, millions of lives are at stake. What do you do? How do you extrapolate that information? I'm not saying, you know, you could have an ethical discussion way beyond this podcast and way beyond the times we have allotted because it, it, you know, it's 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 rape in one sense. You know, it's it's a violation, and you're you're mm-hmm. you're 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 extrapolating information from her against her will. I don't remember the crewman holding her, but I remember Spock grabbing her very aggressively and pulling her in. Right. And I remember with Kim Cattrall, she had a very different take on it. She 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 thought it was very sexy. Um, you know, like this, this, this passionate moment and, and very emotional. And I don't mean sexy in the terms of, you know, going down to that and probably the wrong word, but it was, you know, she found it to be like these, these two were, were really locked in. And, um, so yeah, it, it, it wasn't typical. I, I guess it's, it's one of those things. It's like, if, if you know, the person in front of you can unlock something that is vital, that, that, that people's lives, especially the president, um, you know, you're trying to stop an assassination. What would you do? It's 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 a great question because it all kinds of kind of works itself back into what um, you know many of what our operatives were doing after 9/11 to get information. Mm-hmm. They were they were going beyond things that they had done traditionally to get at it in order to save lives. And we can argue both ways: was it justifiable or not? And I don't want to open that door, but I think it's very synonymous to that. No, I mean. On the Babel conference, and I'm sure when you listen to this, you're going to probably have your own opinion on it. But, you know, there is a fine line mm-hmm. that, you know, you would believe, again, we're going back to the tenants of the original series, you know, because this is the cast of the original series. And in this moment, I have never seen this before, either in Spock or on film, when he actually did a double mind meld, like a, a double clutch mind meld, because he wanted to probe her mind so intently and so deeply because he's like, we have to sell this. We have to salvage this situation. But when I saw that, I'm like, doesn't this kind of go above and beyond what these people should be doing, especially Spock. 
And like, because uh, Scotty says, you know, if you don't, you know, if if you don't know, if you can't figure it out, we're dead. Mm-hmm. But it is a form of mental torture. It, it was, it? yeah, it was. And, and you know, I will say that after it ended, and he he broke off the meld, his voice was shaking as if it was crying. You know, there was mm. there was definitely a tone in his voice when he said, you know, she does not know, and and yeah. um, it was it was very very emotional. It was deep. Let's let's put it that way. And I think this is where you know they 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 said, oh, we we can we can use mind melds. That's one thing we could use. That's a trigger. Um, that's something that's been established in the in the original series. And then I think like they do sometimes with with Nick Meyer, they take the cast in directions that they were never meant to or would have gone. And I'm sure this was part of what Gene Rodden, Gene Roddenberry did not like this movie. And I understand why he didn't like it. He didn't like seeing what the characters doing, what they were doing and saying what they were saying. And I have to agree with some of it. I, I didn't either. Um, the movie overall worked, but there were certain moments that that didn't. Now that specific scene set up a lot of great debates, I think, amongst fandom and, you know, what's wrong and what's right and how far should they go, just like we're talking about it here. It was a very controversial moment. I think that's okay in cinema. I think that it makes us think about ourselves deeply and what you're willing to do uh, to save a life or, you know, is is there certain boundaries where it's like you, you, you can't go there no matter what. And I think, you know, it's it's been discussed before in the network. I know that. It's a very intense one, and uh, it would be fascinating to get a quorum together to discuss it, uh, especially from, you know, especially getting uh, female perspectives on this one, because it's uh, mm-hmm. it's a pretty tough scene. Well, I mean, OK, so as Trek FM hosts for these shows, you know, we have a responsibility to, like, you know, cover certain topics and stuff like that. And I understand. But, you know, when we're talking about this particular scene, I mean, let's. You know, let's put all our cars out on the table. Sometimes when we're talking about Star Trek, you know, we have to talk about how it impacts like the social issues of the time. You know, this was impacting a social issue of the time. Like, let's go all the way to Enterprise and the Enterprise, how, you know, a lot of people correlated that with the issues of 9-11. You know, what was going on at the time in 1991 that would influence the writers to do something like this, to write something like this? Because that is so far beyond the character of Spock or what we would understand of Vulcan mysticism. And I, like I said, I don't want to belabor the point, but when I saw it in 1991, I was like, that doesn't ring true for Spock. I mean, Spock wouldn't push it to that level, but Star Trek as a property is a living, evolving thing. It has to represent what is happening at the time. So whatever was happening at the time, the fall of the cold war, um, and maybe they just used it as a point of pushing drama, but it was, I think we can both agree, and I think the listeners can agree, that it was a very powerful scene, intense. something that we've never seen before in Star Trek. Very intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just, okay, so I don't want to make light of that. I would love to hear all the listeners weigh in this on the Babel Conference, but let's shift a little bit to something that was really positive about this movie, and that was the score. Cliff Eidelman's score was brilliant in this movie, especially... And I don't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to get emotional about it, but I do get emotional about it because at the very end of the movie, when the cast do their signatures, it is probably one of the most signature and heartfelt moments of Star Trek ever. How did you feel about that, Ken, when you saw that? 
Oh, I, I, I loved it. And, you know, I've heard stories afterwards that I'll, that I'll get back to, but, but Cliff Eidelman was an unknown who, um, who really, really hit it out of the park, and he didn't make he didn't do many scores before or after uh, this this movie, and I don't think he's active anymore. But man, did he hit a home run! And and I know that uh, a lot of people are aware that that Nicholas Meyer really wanted just to um, uh, to to use the, the the music from the planets uh, instead, and and Eidelman blew him away uh, and and took away the. Uh, what do you say? Holtz the planets? Yes. Yeah, he hmm. was going to use that okay. theme. Uh, he was getting trying to get the rights to it, but Eidelman came in, did his audition or whatever he presented, and they they really liked his music. That very ominous music uh, that you hear in the beginning. Uh, and if you don't know what that theme sounds like, just listen to uh, uh, melodic tracks because that's how that's how Brandon Shea uh, Matar starts up his his um, his show with it, and it's very very brooding and then at the end man you know you had that that great orchestral feel and sweet you felt like you were getting swept away in the music watching the the names fly through the screen it was it was great to see and it was also sad because i didn't want it to end i really didn't yeah i didn't want this run to end that's what i felt too especially when you saw all these really great light blue signatures that are coming across the screen I am not I am not ashamed at all to say that I was crying through that entire credit sequence. And especially, you know, when you hear Alexander Courage's very famous bomb, 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 bomb. And then that's when William Shatner's signature came on the screen. (sighs) Forgive me if I actually have a pause here, but I'm trying to collect my thoughts. When I was there in the theater. I was crying because I felt that something was ending. I felt that there was something that was just, it was, it was a journey that had to come to its logical conclusion. Now I know that William Shatner and James Doohan and Walter Koenig, they had their moment in generations, but in total from 1979 to 1991, my heart was personally invested in what was happening with these characters. I mean, I wasn't born, I was born in 1972, March 31st, 1972. I didn't have a chance to watch the original series when it came out in 1966. But you knew as a fan of the original series that when you saw these credits happening in 1991, it was the end of an era. Chief, tell me I'm wrong. No, no, no. You're you're not wrong, Norm. I um, I, I I don't know if I was crying. I don't think I was, but that's that's typical of me. There are times when I want to and I can't, and times that I am and I have no idea why. So I, I I'm, I'm I'm usually pretty much a softy and I wear my emotions on my sleeve. But I I I really love this team. It's it's why we're do standard orbit because we love this crew. We love this team. We love what they've done. We love their movies. You know, and that's why, you know, sometimes I can be rather rather sharp in my criticisms when things don't go well. But when you think about it, you know, they made six motion pictures, six movies. And really, in my opinion, they only missed with one. That's not a bad record. Uh, hey, yeah, that's hey. not a bad record. And <laughs> and, and that's in seriousness. I mean, how, how many how many um, series of movies have you seen that 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 
you know, they get it all right. It's it's hard. Yeah. And that's why, and, and I'm saying that, you know, that that's a hell of a track record for a, re, you know, a, a reclamated TV show uh, that lasted really, you know, two and three quarters seasons. Uh, that That's, that's amazing. And um, yeah, I, I didn't want it to end. I, I, I liked the next generation, but I kind of, you know, my whole life I've always rooted for those that, um, uh, that hang in there and stay a while. But I also have to admit that they probably could not have made another movie, not this cast. Uh, there were certain yeah. people that could, they were young enough and in shape and so forth and um, still had a lot of their skill sets and acting still intact, but a lot of them know. And, and so from that, from, from it's, you, you knew it had to end. It was as emotional as all good things. Um, yeah, it was. It was really that good. It, I think it 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 stacks up there as one of the best send offs in, in of all the Star Trek series. I'm going to put you on the spot here. It's not part of your notes, and I just because you know we're they're speaking from the heart here, and I know that it resonates well with the listeners because everyone here, everyone that's listening, has their moment. What was your moment? In Star Trek Six, what was the scene that was just like, you know what? That is what Star Trek means to me. What was the moment in Star Trek Six that this is what Star Trek means to me? Okay, while you're thinking, mm-hmm. I have to put this out there because it is so hilarious. My one of my favorite scenes. It's not what Star Trek Six means to me, but one of my favorite scenes was when Kirk was wrestling with Amon, who turned into Kirk or Greta who turned into Kirk is like, I can't believe I kissed you. It must've been your lifelong ambition that I love that scene because you have to fit Kirk's or Shatner's ego into a movie. So I, I thought that was hilarious. I mean, it was on Rura Penthe. We were in dire situations, but all of a sudden, you know, uh, Iman turns into William Shatner or Greta turns into William Shatner and they have that great scene together. I thought it was hilarious. The levity was right there at the right time, but what scene and listeners on the Babel conference, please let us know what your favorite scene was in Star Trek six, but chief to you, what was the scene that really just stuck with you? Like when you think of Star Trek six, what do you think of? I, I think of when they were trying to save Gorkon's life. Uh, I, I was really, you know, it was a great question. We hadn't prepped for that. And I, I was, I was scanning through, I said, what was the emotional, Oh my goodness. Uh, here was this guy. I, I thought that Dave Warner, David Warner, um, redeemed himself, or he probably felt redeemed uh, play, after playing St. John Talbot in the previous movie. <laughs> and coming into this movie, and I, I mean this with all seriousness, I mean, he, he is a very talented actor. I know he's been in a lot of B-movies, but he has an ability. He has a certain style, uh, and I think he's he's just a class act, and he's a good actor. And you wanted, you, you know, when you say you want good things for good people— he played a brilliant role. He wasn't in a lot of it, but it was the most impactful of them all. And when McCoy's desperately trying to save him, uh, Kirk beams over to that ship. He doesn't even think twice about it, knowing that he's going right into the teeth of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that to me was, you know, their last best chance, you know, for, for peace in the galaxy was, was Gorkhan at that time. And when he was pulled out of it, I thought that... Um, I was like, "Oh my, where is this? Where is this movie going to go?" Because I didn't expect him to get shot or killed um, when when all of that went down. In fact, that hesitation when the trip before the phaser trigger was pulled, and he went spinning into oblivion, and they did that close up of his eyes. I, I guess it was all of that where I just went, "Man, this is this is getting real, and it's getting intense." And 
you know, um, I love seeing McCoy doing everything he could to try to save his life. That is definitely a Star Trek moment. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of my favorite scenes too. I mean, when, when, DeF- I mean, this is DeForest at being DeForest and McCoy being McCoy. And it's like, I tried desperately to save him. He was our last best chance for peace. That, that for me was a great scene. And I really did not like the whole point where Chang said, you know, where your hands shaking, you know, because of, you know, you were uh, drunk on, on Romulan ale. I'm like, mm, evil. Evil, absolutely evil. <laughs> that was a but, great scene too, though. That's yeah, that's yeah. where Christopher Plummer killed it. That was that was better than his Shakespearean lines during the battle. That court. Don't wait scene. for the answer. Or don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. It was intense. Yeah, he did a great job with that. He really yeah. did. And I think that the addition of Christopher Plummer. I mean, he really added that extra element. I mean, sure, we loved like Lawrence Luckenbill, you know, as Cyborg, and we loved you know loved uh, um, Christopher Lloyd. You know, as uh, <laughs> you're killing, you're killing yeah. me, aren't you? You're just, you're just like oh. throwing those little darts at me. <laughs> yeah. But I think with with Christopher Plummer's Chang, we saw something different. We saw something completely. Uh, I guess it would be in the tradition of John Colicos, you know, in the tradition of uh, Michael and Sarah. You know, as those Klingons. Well, there was so. there was definitely a lot of intelligence behind it too, and that's yeah. that's that's what I liked about about Chang. He not only was he a good adversary, but you know, I I, I kind of took it that he um, had a lot to do with the whole conspiracy. Maybe even directed directed it all, you know, and and really wanted all that to happen. And in his his plot worked beautifully. It really mm-hmm. did. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Norm. He he. He added a certain level you didn't see for any of the Klingons. In my opinion, he is the best Klingon ever in Star Trek. I think that DeForest had one of the best lines, you know, when he was just spouting, when Chang was just spouting Shakespeare, and then he said, I'd, real, I'd pay real money to shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. So as... As we wrap things up, Chief, and, and I really I really don't want to, so please take your time with this last question. Sure. Because Star Trek Six to me was okay, so in nineteen ninety one, you know, I was I, I really kind of like started to fully understand and take hold of just the political ramifications of the of this particular movie, what it meant to the twenty fifth anniversary. I mean, I really understood what was going on. I was just, you know, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. Um there were just certain things that were uh, part of my enlightenment at the time. But when I first, when I saw that I went alone, I mean, I went, I was in upstate New York I was in Geneva, New York at Hobart college. I went downtown to Geneva, New York. I went to this movie on my own because God forbid when you're a freshman in college, would anyone go to a Star Trek film with you or nearly admit it, but it changed things for me in Star Trek. And as we wrap up this show in our final thoughts, what was the one element in the undiscovered country that really fundamentally changed you or stuck with you as a Star Trek fan? And I'd like to put that out to the Babel conference as well. Was there something in that movie that really said, you know what, this really challenged me as a fan or yes, it absolutely rang true to the original series. 
Oh, it it had both. It had both. It it played it 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 um it definitely had that that humility in there, especially with that Kirk line where you're telling me when 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 he was having that fight with uh Iman. But for me, the the toughest thing of all of it was one, it was it was such a good movie. I wanted one more. <laughs> I did <laughs> when you say what changed for me, it was like I had to um, and I know this sounds silly because it's a movie and, and you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to equate this to, to real life. And it's not. It's a movie. But however, this is the kind of impact this, this series had on me. I really wanted another movie because they still made a great movie. It, it had a lot of elements that you could pick at. And there were things in the movie that we didn't get into that I, that I didn't like. We don't need to. It was a great movie overall. But that was the biggest thing for me. It was like, okay, now I've got a, I've got to switch now and and really invest even more in TNG because my cast, the cast that I grew up with, I, you know, in a sense, it kind of shows your own mortality uh, when when things go by. You know, when your favorite baseball or football player retires, uh, and and it's the end of an era. Uh, to me, that that end of an era. Was was hard, and and generations didn't do anything um, to help that ending. It didn't give me a softened ending at all. It was, it was hard. But when I watch those movies now, at, in in with with a different lens and being older or whatever, it was time for them to end it. So they ended it right. I just didn't want it to, and I, I was I was uh, hoping that maybe they they would be. In Star Trek Seven, it would have been the whole original cast brought in to take on the new cast or join forces or something. I really wanted that, um, but it wasn't meant to be, and they went in another direction, and that direction was about as bad a one as I could think of. So, I, um, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that they they left with class, and I just I just pretend that generations never took place. Do you wish in generations that Kirk? Scotty and Chekhov weren't part of that scene. I wish they had just made if if all good things was generations, it would have been a brilliant movie. The movie they made uh, was far worse than Star Trek Five. It it was a horrible movie um, for mm-hmm. me, and and I was a TNG fan. Don't get me wrong. I just I was so disappointed because if you're going to bring Kirk and Picard together on screen, you could kill it. Right. And we're not going to get into right. generations, but there was nothing that worked in that movie for me. Absolutely zip zero. And um, that's why I think we're going right into Star Trek 09, because we were debating whether or not to do generations. I think yeah. I think that would be fun to do with the um, the TNJ crew over at Earl Grey. I'd love to have that conversation with a couple of their members and our members. But mm-hmm. I would definitely be on the side that says um, worst Star Trek movie ever. <laughs> okay, so we'll we'll have that debate later on, and um, I'm sure that uh, Daniel and Philip um, uh, and Darren is Darren is on that. Yeah, Darren they, Moser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will they'll have their opinion on that. But uh, you know, the interesting thing about Star Trek Six is I think a lot of people, including myself, they kind of like walked into the theater knowing that this was supposed to be the last. You're right that there was there was a, there was a very fixed lot. Um, Oh gosh, there's a very fixed point. Longevity, uh, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Um, to this cast, because as you said in Star Trek Five, there was an age issue that was happening there, but in Star Trek Six, it felt like 
this was kind of like their retirement run. Right. You know, they were supposed to go into this situation where, yes, Kirk has the most experience with a Klingon Empire. Yes, his crew had the most experience with Kirk. So they would all have this complete synergistic relationship with going into this mission. But as a viewer, you were like, hmm. This is something that uh, obviously was new. Uh, it um, it challenged you in a way because you didn't really see a lot of what was going on, the machinations, the Klingon Empire. And there were a lot of your own kind of Star Trek loyalties that were being challenged. Right. And I thought, you know, as, at least for me, when I was watching it, I was like, there were certain things like, yeah, Kirk, you know what? He's just a regular old human being. He's a little bit petty. He's absolutely bitter about what happened to his son. And yes, I have them, you know, Kirk has the most experience, but can history get past people like me? He admits it. He admits the fact that this, this, this mission was jeopardized from the beginning, you know, because he has prejudice against what was going on. But at the same time, even Gorkon was saying like, you know what? Don't let it end this way. You know, we are better than this. We have to be able to push forward because if not, we as species, as the human and Klingon empires, we won't be able to move forward in the way that we think we should move forward. You know, it, it, I mean, I know that Gene wasn't involved with this movie really at all, but in terms of the people that were responsible for this, they brought up some pretty interesting arguments, especially with, how do I say this? Original series fans love the fact that the Federation is supposed to be this embracing and open-minded structure, this organization. But what I love about Six, I'm going to close my I'm going to close my thoughts with this, is that it showed that humans are humans. You know, they aren't this. We aren't this species that has evolved past certain things. That's what I love about Enterprise is that humans are, they are slaves to their evolution. And that Kirk, he himself, I mean, think about it this way. Go all the way back to Balance of Terror when Kirk said to Stiles, like, you know, there's no, for, there's no room for bigotry on my bridge. What do you think was happening in that dinner scene? Bigotry all over the place, right? So how far as human beings have we really evolved and that's what Star Trek Six has really brought to the table. I mean, I don't know if the listeners would disagree with me. Ken, do you guess, do you disagree with me on that? No, no, no. And and I think that even back in Star Trek Two, that that's what Nicholas Meyer had said that we still read books. <laughs> you know, most likely uh, we we haven't evolved that much. He looked back at the original series TV shows. And he came out of it, you know, cowboy diplomacy, that type of stuff. I mean, it was, uh, it was the it was it was one thing to say that it was utopian and everybody got along and all that stuff, and I never took that from the original series. What I took about it was is that we were going to make it, that we um, set aside our differences and we and we move forward. But that doesn't mean every emotion has and you've been reprogrammed. Uh, it just means that we were able to get 
beyond those things. It's kind of like mm-hmm. saying that Spock doesn't have emotions. He does, right. but he right. controls them. And that's that's where we came in terms of prejudice and focus and, and understanding value in all people, in all life. Uh, but as you can see, uh, you know, that, that, that switches quickly. And after the third se- season of the, the Next Generation, even that switched again, you know, where when you know, they were really talking about how, how much they evolved and then, you know, before you knew it, they, they were coming off as arrogant and, and over the top. So it's a very fine line we work in. So it brought it back to a perspective that seemed to me to be real, that, you know, we can still be flawed and still progress. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I wish we could like do this for three hours because I think that one of the secrets uh, successes of Star Trek Six was how much it actually challenged us as viewers, you know, as, especially as Star Trek fans. But in our final thoughts, Chief, was there anything that we missed, or was there something that, like, you actually wanted to bring up that you felt that was so, you know, so strongly connected to you as a fan when it came to Star Trek Six? I think we captured it all. I, I, I'd be going over things we've discussed. I think you did a great job of, of pulling some things out that 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 we hadn't really um, had planned on it, and it made me think just like the movie did. So I'm, I, I've got my my biggest, I guess, emotional impact statements already out there. I'll just say that Star Trek VI was a really, really strong movie, one of the best in the franchise. Um, there will be no Star Trek V versus Star Trek VI, uh, like we did for <laughs> the motion picture and the Wrath of yeah. Khan, uh, because um, it's not worth it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. two, different, two different movies, and I'm glad that more than anything else, that that wonderful cast got to go out on top versus the real risk that it was just it was about 50-50 there about going out with five and so they you know they they did it right and um they made us think and it was very emotional the send off they got was very emotional so and they didn't blow up the ship so that's a good thing that is a good thing and i remember when i was in college in 1991 uh when i got uh, or at least i saw it was like the 20th anniversary like celebration video when they were teasing a lot of this, uh, there was a lot of positivity going on at the time. And I think Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were hosting this 25th anniversary video and they were kind of like teasing the movie. And what I loved about that was there was still this air of possibility, the wonder of the original series. Um, But I think that when I clipped my final piece from USA Today, and it was this great shot of, it's a very, very famous shot of like all of them in uniform. I knew that there was something that was coming to a close. And I'm going to, I'm going to read your notes here, Ken, because you really wrote this really quite brilliantly. The crew had a wonderful 25 year run. In my opinion, the cast could have pulled off another film as a group. The final lines and the signatures at the end made this the last hurrah a reality. Originally, the crew was to sign their characters' names in the log of the final flight of the Enterprise, but it was switched to the actors' names. It would have nice to have been both. But when I saw that, especially when you heard the Alexander Courage bar, that dun, da dun, 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 it swelled to this point where William Shatner's signature came across. Mm-hmm. And for me, it it signified that something was coming to a close. And it really brought to me a sense of 
melancholy, I guess, yeah. when you're really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, a sense of <sighs> disappointment is not the right word because I wasn't disappointed in what was happening. There was just a sense of, and it wasn't really closure because with all things fiction, you can actually extend the life expectancy of that. I just knew that something was happening. So there was a shift in the universe that was happening and definitely in the universe of the original series. So Star Trek six, I think, and I'm going to speak for the chief here. Star Trek six was a pivotal moment in Star Trek history. It ended the reign of the original series. It didn't necessarily pass the baton because we had that in generations, but what it, a little, a little, yeah, you're right. A little, but at least for me, what it did was it, that it, it gave all of our characters a sense of closure slash purpose because there were still, I mean, they still had their careers to evolve from, but I think as characters, we were saying our final goodbyes to this crew. That's something very difficult to do. As a fan of a lot of genres, and, and, and Ken, I know that you have a lot of other genres that you like too. Um, in Babylon 5, when I said goodbye to that crew, I was a, an emotional and emotional mess. Emotional mess. Because when you think of these films, I mean, think about this. You have been watching this crew from 1966 to 1991. There is so much that you have invested in your personal life, in everything that makes you who you are into this crew. And I'm not going to say that for the original, you know, for the next generation or for Deep Space Nine or for Voyager. This is the original crew. This is what Betty Jo Trimble fought so hard for to continue. And you're finally seeing the logical end of this crew. Not something that to be taken lightly. So at the end of Star Trek VI, what we were experiencing was the end of something legendary. And I want everyone that's listening to this show to appreciate that space of time. Ken, I'm going to have you, I'm going to give you one more opportunity to reflect upon this. Well, the only thing I'll say is that um, when I say that they they did they they could have passed the torch with this, just in the 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 final um, words that that Shatner did in the final log of the Enterprise when he mentions that the the care of the ship would soon uh, be um, be handed over to another crew and to them and their posterity and he went on and on but he did do the. You know, where no, where no man, mm-hmm. where no one has gone before. And mm-hmm. that's when the ship disappears, and that's when the, the, the signature started popping up, and that's when, to me, that was the final final. It was like, okay, yeah. it's done. And, you know, I don't know how many times I saw this movie in the theaters. I know it was a lot, though, because it was that. It was like, I wasn't ready to be finished, so I'm going to go watch him again. I'm still not ready. I'm going to go watch him again. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's what I did. Uh, so I think you you delivered the message as eloquently and as emotionally as uh, as as possible. And in fact, uh, it, it it probably should have ended on that note because it, you, sometimes when it's at the top, I don't want to bring it back down. So you you, you did a hell of a job with it. Well, thank you, thank you, Chief. And I, I wish uh, Atos could have been here for this, but 
Star Trek VI, I think, in time, in history, in the moment that it was in. I'm going to share one last anecdote with you, the listeners. I was <laughs> see, it's like the movie. We don't want yeah. it to end, <laughs> right? We want, you know, we don't want it to end. But I was, I was in the commissary of my college, and I remember reading this in the USA Today, and I wanted to go with people who wanted to watch the end of this particular crew. Something, I mean, my best friend, Todd Burroughs, is going to, and Ken, you're going to meet him in Las Vegas. He's going with me to Star Trek because we've loved these. He and I probably wouldn't have been friends if it wasn't for the, the original series. And we were there in 1991 together watching this movie. And I think that after that movie, we went for many drinks because we were toasting the end of an era. This is the end, technically, of the original series era. The original series of, and I'm going to take a moment to say every single actor's name. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Walter Koenig, George Takei, and Shell Nichols. That is, you have to respect that moment because those are the signatures that you saw at the end of the credits. And once you experienced that in real time, when you saw that in the theaters, you know it was happening. And that was probably one of the most special moments in the history of Star Trek that I've ever experienced. I mean, the crew had a, a wonderful 25-year run and the cast could not have pulled off maybe another film the final lines and signatures at the end made their last hurrah a reality. And yes, we saw their actors' names at the end, and I thought that was fitting. So that was probably the most special moment in Star Trek that one of the most special moments in Star Trek that I've ever experienced. But I wish we could go on forever talking about this movie because it was amazing. But it's it's not the only the Undiscovered Country. Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country, has not been the only thing that we've talking that we've I'm a little verklempt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. I mean, it's like there's a lot of emotion that's going on right now. And I'm sure it is with you. But we have to move on. And because we are a network, we talk about more things than Star Trek VI, the other uh, the undiscovered country. So here are other things. <laughs> that's it's weird, Ken. I didn't think I would get this emotional about wow, it. Yeah. But so, yeah. All right, take your time. Yeah. So uh, here are other things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. You know, Star Trek All Access gives you a great acronym, though. STAR! STAR, yeah. Yes. <laughs> STAR! <laughs> yeah, the upward <laughs> angle on the... Yeah, totally get it. The orb. I don't know if obsessive love is really love because it's I, I, I think it's more about possession yeah, and for yeah. Ducat she's a possession of his not really a relationship of his the 602 club I loved that first volume the, the three minute format I was highly skeptical about it Tartakovsky I believe was in Star Wars Insider they had an interview with them where they were like oh this is bold you know three minutes how did this come about and I remember very specifically because I was stunned 
and introducing Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. I had the story brewing in my head for a long time, but I eventually realized it was a beautiful fit for this project, and it turned out to be the right fit. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Now, usually this is the moment where we would ask Mr. Ataz, God, I, was, I so wish he was here for this show, uh, for this segment and how they can access Trek FM through all the different ways that you can find it on the internet and social media. So you can find Trek FM on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can find Trek FM and the MP3 file on our website, at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find Trek FM as they search iTunes, and it helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. And traditionally, this is the chief segment, so let us talk a little bit about patreon.com. Chief. So Patreon is the service Trek FM employs to receive donations for our listener-supported network. Uh, Norm, Jeff, and I are all large contributors to this network, so we do practice what we preach. And we appreciate whatever you can afford to help us to bring interruption-free podcasting to you. So please log into Patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM, and see the perks you can receive for the level of donations you can afford. And they include exclusive content. Uh, for $25 uh, a month, you can get AP Associate Producer credit on any of our network shows, and that, that's a big deal for all of us. And then at the $15 level, you can join the Patrons Roundtable that is uh, convened twice weekly by Will Wynn and Aaron Harvey. So it's, it's, it's a great way for us to show our appreciation for you uh, willing to help us out. So all of us at Trek FM and Standard Orbit especially appreciate any of the support that you can give us. Absolutely, Chief. You know, the funny thing is about um, patreon.com slash trek.fm is that a lot of us came through the network through that program. We love supporting the network and what it does and just being able to perpetuate what's happening with the network is an absolute joy for a lot of us. I have to absolutely thank all of our associate producers that have funded Standard Orbit, supported Standard Orbit through you know, thick and thin and through all this time, Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge have been with us for a long time. But I also have to say thank you to Aaron Harvey. Now, I know Aaron really well. Aaron Harvey is our creative director here at Trek FM, but he is a tried and true, the original series fan and also the animated series fan. And it's a great honor for us to have him support us through Trek FM, uh, the Patreon program, because <laughs> I'm having a hard time actually reading a lot of these credits because I keep thinking about the end of Star Trek six. It's a, it's, it's a hugely emotional <laughs> issue for me, but thank you so much for all of your support, Renee, Richard, and Aaron. You can find Renee at MRS underscore one seven Oh one. You can find Richard at R U T eight nine seven two. And you can find Aaron at geek filter. These are all of their addresses on Twitter. So if you'd like to contact them, through Twitter, those are their addresses to do so. And speaking of Aaron, you can, you can, he's such a talented guy and he's done so much for the network. And if you'd like to wear 
his Trek FM designs specifically created for this network. You can find him on redbubble.com. Type trek.fm into the search field and you can find his inspirations all over that website. You can find Andy's Ninja Cat. You can find all of the team logos that he has made. And congratulations to Aaron for winning the Star Trek.com contest where you can find his 50th anniversary design. It is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant and something that I am actually proud to wear. Please wear that if you are going to the Star Trek Las Vegas convention in August, in the first week of August, because it is literally, I think, one of the best Star Trek designs you have ever seen. So find him on redbubble.com. Find us on redbubble.com. Trek FM in the search field. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contract. So, uh, look in the sidebar on the show page. You can also go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. Please leave us a voice message. I don't think we get enough, Kent. Do you? I haven't heard any voice messages yet. No. So you can leave us a voice message there. Speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. You can also leave the chief Stump Mr. Atos questions. Now, I know he's not here. Do we have any Stump Mr. Atos questions here, Ken? No, it's been quiet. Uh, we had a, a flood of them a few weeks back, and uh, we, I think we were doing two at a time at a few shows. Maybe we should have uh, kept our cachet <laughs> a little bit better loaded. But uh, uh, no, we haven't. So if you, mm-hmm. if you have something you'd like to stump Mr. Atos, or even if you want to stump the Commodore, he was on pretty good roll today. Uh, just, just I am me on on Facebook, uh, and I'll I'll just roll right into that, and that's where you're going to find me, right? So they talk about the comment, the, uh, the 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 where you can find me t- a segment here, and that's that's on the Babel conference. I, I'm not on any other social me- uh, networks other than Facebook, and I hang around the the Babel conference quite a bit, and and I look forward to to hearing from you. So don't hesitate to either friend me and I am me, or um, just engage in conversations when our shows pr- are produced. I wish I had a con. I mean, I feel good today. I mean, maybe it's just because of Star Trek six and maybe because it's like pulling something out from deep inside, you know, Trek FM wise or trivia wise, but I felt pretty good today. So you're on a roll. So I, I, I mean, you too. I mean, I thought we were doing some pretty good stuff here and, and maybe the, uh, uh, maybe Mr. Atos will feel a little bit more proud of us there. So mm-hmm. again, if you'd like to hit, you know, get in touch with us here, Trek FM, you can find us on Trek FM slash contact. Look in the sidebar on the show page. You can go to speakpipe.com. Leave us that voice message. As I've mentioned before, you can go to Twitter at Trek FM. You can go to Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And the chief and I and Mr. Atos, we are always on the Babel conference. Type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek.FM and click discussion on the menu bar. And as the chief said, not the broadest social media user in the world, but you can find him on the Babel conference. And we love engaging all of our fans, especially on the show topic. And I have to have, I mean, I believe that Star Trek six is going to be probably a bigger show topic for most. What do you think, Ken? It should be. It should be. I'll I'll be curious to see the reaction to the last few, but yeah, I I think Star Trek six should be a, a, a big attention grabber. I'm looking forward to some good dialogue. I always look forward to late in the afternoons on on Mondays after the shows are published and I can finally get online and see what's being said and how it's being carried and where the conversations are going. So this, hey, the, we, we definitely weren't afraid to uh, turn right into the torpedo and hit some of the more um, 
I guess, controversial subjects with Star Trek VI as well as uh, the emotional aspects of it. So, yeah, I'm expecting good things. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much in Star Trek VI to unpack, and I know that an hour, 20, hour, 30 minutes probably doesn't do enough justice to talk about the show, but that's how we carry the conversation over and continue it into the Babel Conference. So please type in B-A-B-E-L into your search field, and we can continue that conversation once this show drops and you listen to it and have your own opinions about it. Now, Mr. Atas, I wish he was here. Schmedlap, gosh darn him. You know, I don't, this I don't is why he, I don't. He had nothing to do with it. Come I don't on, allow no. liquids near the Atavacron, and I'm tr- pretty sure that he <laughs> spilled a little bit of Romulan ale there, and that's my fault because I shouldn't have Romulan ale next to an Atavacron. So if you don't have access to Mr. Atas Atavacron or any type of transmat beam or a type 44 TARDIS. You can always find him on the Babel conference on Facebook. He is the co-host here on standard orbit orbit uh, and warp five Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. Uh, he's also on Twitter at Harlander. And I don't know if you know this folks, but Mr. Atos is probably one of the most passionate Star Trek fans that have has ever walked to this earth. So please, if you ever have a question for Mr. Atos, please come to us here on Standard Orbit or any of the avenues that we've talked about on Trek FM and get in, in touch with him because he also has his trekopedia.com, which is probably one of the most extensive encyclopedic digital resources for anything Star Trek. So please get in touch with him. Find him on trekopedia.com. Ken, I know you don't have a huge social presence, but how can our fans get in touch with you either to touch base with you or to talk about maybe a question to stump Mr. Atos? It's through the Babel Conference, Norm, and that's that's where I was going before. Just uh, feel free to to IM me and feel free to... Uh, Add me to your to your list of friends. I love having friends on Facebook, and mm. uh, we can we can definitely uh, you know get the information in to to stump him. But that's like I said, that's where I I usually hang out, and especially on Mondays and Tuesdays after our shows drop, so that we can engage our our listeners, and that's that's the most fun I have every week. Absolutely, I love talking to our listeners, and please. Anytime you have a question that you have for your Standard Orbit crew, please let us know. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference or on, you know, anywhere on Facebook because that's where I usually reside. Or you can find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. So thanks everyone for listening. This has been a fantastic show. I know a lot of people are emotionally engaged with Star Trek VI. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.